My pain. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Welcome to the Human Things Podcast. This is Jay Watts of Merely Human Ministries. Wow, Wesley, life is pain. When I posted online that I intended to use this as the launching point of this week, I got a message from somebody that told me that they had this exact conversation with their teenager at home. That is an answer, right? Your kid is out of control. I'm a ma- like, it's buttercup, right? You mock my pain. Life is pain. Anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. A stunning dismissal of ethical hedonism. Just sweep it out of the way. No pleasure principle to serve life is pain. Get over it. I guess you can figure out what this episode is going to be talking about today. The idea of dealing with pain, particularly as I broadcast, still from shelter in place, still from social distancing world, dealing with the ideas of pain as it's coming into our lives right now. It's interesting when you have the opportunity to talk to audiences and young people around this country Pain plays an important part in how they think of managing their ethical decisions. And what I mean by that is I go to schools, I go to universities, I go to high schools, and I give presentations about the equal dignity of all human life. And then every human being should be treated with dignity and respect, every single one of them. And what they do often when I get done laying out a case, and almost all the time, most of the time, the subject matter we're discussing is abortion. And the idea that all human beings, including the unborn, ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And we should limit our behavior to them, not least of which is just not to kill them. And then something that happens when I get done. A a line of students prepare themselves with their questions. And oftentimes their questions can be one scenario after another where they try to imagine some level of suffering where I'll say, okay, that's fine. In that particular area, you can kill another human being. That suffering is bad enough. That pain is bad enough. That scenario that you gave me is just awful enough. And I remember a young man and I were talking up in Chicago after I got done speaking and he was bringing up a scenario about suffering and pain. And as he offered it up to me and he, he, I could tell this wasn't trivial. This was somebody who was deeply bothered by the idea that we should free up someone else to make a choice to avoid suffering. And I asked him a question. I asked him, who taught you? Who taught? Whoever said that a human life without suffering and pain was possible or a legitimate goal? Who taught you that this was a thing to pursue? Who gave us a view of humanity without ever having to deal with it? I don't even know if it's possible. It doesn't believe that it's possible. I intend to discuss that today is the possibility of it. Is it even something to seek? And would it be good for us? Is it healthy to constantly avoid any pain, any suffering, to seek a life where we have none of it? And most of the time, this is a prediction of pain, right? It's not really what's going on immediately. It's not happening to us now. What they're trying to do is imagine a level of pain, a level of suffering, something that can morally excuse. And I'm not the only person, by the way, that, that sees this. I had the privilege of being interviewed by Kristen Hawkins of Students for Life of America. 
And during our conversation, she and I were talking about the idea that we meet so many people that have developed a justification through suffering for all sorts of things, as if the specter of suffering itself, the specter of pain looming over us, suddenly opens up moral possibilities that would not be there if we didn't foresee frustration and anticipating the things that we would lose through whatever the means of suffering or pain that they've imagined. And here's where today this world that we're living into becomes interesting because there was no way you could foresee the world that we're living in even like six or seven months ago. No way you could prepare yourself for this. And in this case, I'm not talking about even the loss of life, which is a real profoundly important aspect of this. But so many other frustrations and pain and loss that people are experiencing, that people in my house are experiencing right now. A young man that had two mission trips that he thought about for years, looked forward to for years, who had an opportunity to, he wanted to go to the summer seminar to be accepted into the Naval Academy summer seminar. You only get to do that as a rising senior, the end of your junior year and the summer of your rising senior year. Three things he looked forward to and worked towards and sought excellence in his schooling and did everything he was supposed to do to put himself in a position to be able to maximize those opportunities and all of them gone over the course of a couple of weeks, taken away because the world shut down over COVID-19. The people that I know that have invested time, built the resources, the backing, the planning to create a business, did everything they were supposed to do with no way to anticipate the whole world would shut down in 2020. There was real loss going out there and those people could never have foreseen. And that's one of the things as I go back to that young man, you're foreseeing a particular aspect of your life or somebody is foreseeing a particular aspect, a particular property a particular level of pain and suffering or frustration that they don't want to endure. And they're going to take action, justify it to remove that from their life. Whether it be an unplanned child, a child with an unfavorable pre, uh, prenatal diagnosis, whatever. And all I'm asking back is what makes you think you're going to be able to avoid it? And what makes you think that'll be better for you in the long run if you do? And, and some of this is mourning the loss of things that aren't real. Losing a relative is different, right? My father, when he died, it was a cessation, a secession. It ceased. A relationship ceased that had existed. There were things that we did together. Played chess. I remember sitting there watching him grill. And we would eat whatever he grilled afterwards, riding in a boat at the lake. And even though... At the end of his life, for reasons not to go into in this podcast, we didn't see or talk to each other that much towards the end. It doesn't mean that I still don't miss those real things that I lost. Years after he died, my wife was pregnant with our third child. It was profoundly difficult to not be able to call my father and say, hey, guess what? I lost something that was real, that was actually a part of my life. 
and then I'll never have it back this side of heaven. But the, the loss that we're talking about of the experiences that were hoped for, the opportunities or desires that you wanted, the trips that you wanted to take, these aren't real things. Or not real in the sense that you had something, you're mourning the loss of the ceasing of something that you experienced in reality. This is the loss of opportunity, the loss of hope. It's a different kind of loss. You see it on a much more profound level than what my son was dealing with or other people that I know were dealing with when we are, we're talking about those prenatal diagnoses that I mentioned and reading an author who was defending the idea that children with down syndrome ought to be allowed to be born. His defense of that, as he talked about the, in his book talking about this, he talked about the mourning period that we go through when we get a prenatal diagnosis of down syndrome And what's interesting there is they didn't find out he who has a child with down syndrome didn't find out his child would have no life. He found out his child would have a different life. Something he didn't immediately understand. And he saw it as a more limited life in some sense. And he talked about his mourning, the loss of a child that never existed but he had hopes for that child dreams for that child. And and somehow they were taken away at that moment of diagnosis. I can understand that in a different sense. When my uh, daughter MJ was diagnosed with diabetes, I didn't think MJ was ever going to be an astronaut, but the day she was diagnosed with type one diabetes, I knew she was never going to be an astronaut. I didn't think she was going to be a fighter pilot, but that day I figured out she was never going to be. You see, what happened were all of these these ideas about possibilities that were open for her were taken away, and her life seemed to become more limited, and there was mourning. As we learned afterwards about the amazing life she could have as a type 1 diabetic, just like the author of this book learned about the amazing and rich relationships that he can have and experience with a child with Down syndrome. And not just he and his own child, but siblings in that child and his community in that child. And that that child would grow up in all probability with 99% probability to believe that their life was valuable and to enjoy being alive and enjoy living it. You see, we lost something that wasn't real a life that didn't exist, a child didn't die, but the idea of what that child would be changed. They didn't lose all possibilities, but they lost some. And the loss of those things, real or not, just like the loss of those mission trips or summer seminar or only, or, or lacrosse seasons or, or soccer seasons, or all the things that people are losing or baseball seasons, all the things that maybe some of these young people are losing. They may not have been real in the sense that they didn't lose something that they had experienced, What they lost was the ideal of what those things could mean to them. The expectation of those things being special memories that they carried with them and cherished for the rest of their lives. It wasn't the ceasing of an active relationship. It was the loss of a very particular thing to which they hoped for, worked towards, strived for. And that's real loss. So one of the things is I want to talk about a strategy, somewhat, just like a a loose strategy of dealing with loss and pain. 
One of the, the scriptures I like is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Why do we not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death and death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. If you are dealing with loss, even the loss of a loved one, we need to reflect on the idea that is talked about in Thessalonians there for we believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Thessalonians was written, letters written to a community of believers who were living within a culture that was different from the one that they were seeking to establish. And there he says, if you are dealing with loss, let's talk about what the loss of your loved one truly is. Because if we don't, you will grieve like people who have no hope. And so real genuine loss of life, much less the loss of things that were hoped for that we wanted, have to be dealt with like those who understand the world differently than those who have no hope. How do we look at people? Now, one of the things I'd like to say, talk about for a second is Elijah. It's a story that I love about the Elijah that when he flees to Mount Horeb, one of the reasons I like to talk about it in the context of this idea is because I do think that there's a danger that can accompany loss, pain, suffering, grieving, mourning. One of the things I've experienced personally myself, I've seen in the lives of other people around me, I think it's one of the reasons I like the Bible is that I grew up not believing in it. I did not think it was real. I thought it was a book of fantasy. And then once I became a believer, because I fell in love with Christ, I started reading the Old Testament, these stories that seemed so silly to me when I was younger, as I read them for myself, I saw us in them. They didn't ring false. They rung true. The human beings that I was reading about in the Old Testament just acted like the people that I knew. Stupid, reckless, selfish. This was the world that I knew and we were all over it. And it wasn't even just the the bad guys, like the spiritual heroes are acting like crazy people. And I love it because I'm that crazy and I understand exactly why they are doing the things that they're doing. And in this story, Elijah, after his great victory on Mount Carmel, Jezebel says she wants him dead. And so what does he do after God has just delivered him back home and given him this great victory in front of all of Jerusalem? He leaves. He runs out after he vanishes runs into the wilderness to get away from Jezebel. And eventually he ends up, and how we got there, we'll talk about in just a second. Eventually he ends up in a cave at Mount Horeb. And God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are we doing here? And his answer is just amazing. Essentially what he says to God is, he, Elijah, has done everything he was supposed to do. Lived up to every part of his bargain and yet he alone is faithful to god everybody else everybody else has given in everybody else has compromised themselves only elijah is faithful to god and this was the thing that i wanted to talk about that i say it looks like the world that i know just tonight we were watching a tv show with our daughters 
And after it was over, after this one character on the show and her grieving and mourning the loss of somebody accuses everybody else, it seems like a falling short of not done what they were supposed to do. Why? Because this became an isolating thing for her. She alone was genuinely and truly experiencing this. She alone was a target of this. It reminds me of something that one of my nephews used to do when he was young. He would get hurt. And it could be the most innocent thing in the world. He and his brothers or he and one of his cousins would run at each other, fall, and he would just break down hysterical weeping. And when his parents would say, what is wrong, man? Just get up. Everything's all right. It was an accident. He would scream back at him. He did it on purpose. He did it on purpose. It was no accident. It was intentional. And it was aimed at me. And I alone am feeling it. Now, he didn't go that far, right? He wasn't a creepy little kid. It's like, he did it on purpose. But that's the end of it, right? That's the gist of it. That's the meat of it. Elijah replies, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. I'm alone in this. I have had so many people tell me that for the years, over the years. I've said it to people. You couldn't possibly understand what I'm going through. You couldn't possibly know what I'm enduring. I'm alone. Isolated. This is happening to me. And that's one of the things that we fight in our family. One of the things we, we try our best to, to encourage our kids not to think, not to feel, not to allow to overtake them. I think there's a great, look at how God dealt with Elijah prior to this declaration of his being alone. Elijah flees. God finds him, feeds him, gives him drink, lets him rest, feeds him, gives him drink, lets him rest. Gives him the energy that he needs to take a 40 day journey to Mount Horeb. When he gets there, God calmly asks him, Hey, Elijah, what are we doing here, man? How did we go from victory to a cave in Mount Horeb and you being the wreck of a man that you are right now? And Elijah gives him the answer that I just told you. And then God does this great thing. He shows him his power and authority. And then he gently asks him again, hey, man, what are we doing here? And Elijah, in the greatest moment of being just like all the rest of us idiots, gives him the exact same response word for word that he just gave him before. And this is where we learn something because God's response this time is essentially, he says something like this. I don't have time for this. We got stuff we got to do. What he actually says, then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. And then he says this, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him. I mean, that's what essentially he's like, dude, I don't have time for this. Get up. You got stuff you got to do. I got a job for you to do. 
I tried, man. I tried. I I, I fed you. I, I gave, got you this nice cave. Showed you that I'm still the man. I got it. The, as my friend used to tell me all the time, there was no shift on the throne. He's still there. He's fine. There's no shift of power. All authority still resides with him. It's, he's like, look, Elijah, get up. And oh, by the way, you're not alone. I got 7,000 people still faithful to me. So go do your job. In exact opposition to what we're seeing here, when Alex Trebek a year ago announced that he was dealing with pancreatic cancer, what was the first thing that he said in his announcement? He said, I, like 50,000 other Americans this year, found out that I'm battling stage four pancreatic cancer. Not to be isolated. Not to allow himself to entertain the idea that there was something dramatic or unique. It's intentional. It's purposeful. They meant to do it. It's happening to me. Alex Trebek says, me and 50,000 other people are all dealing with the same bad news. And just like them, I'm going to give it my everything to beat this thing. We cannot allow the bad news that we're dealing with to isolate us from the community around us. And our community begins with our family and friends and the people immediately around us. Get out of your grief long enough to be good to the people around you. And there's a great strategy, right? Don't let it isolate us. If somebody around us is feeling raw, give them something to eat, give them something to drink, let them rest. Say, get yourself ready for the journey. If they still don't get it together, hey, what are we doing here, man? What's going on? They still don't get it direct. At some point or another, you look at them and say, I don't know what to tell you, man. You woke up this morning, so you got a job to do. Get up, get to work. Some goals were lost, make new goals. Some hopes were lost. Get new hope. Get your eyes where they belong. See the big picture. There's good work to do as long as we're here. So that's the first thing, a strategy, just briefly, and this idea of dealing with loss, pain, suffering. But another thing I want to talk about is it, it doesn't seem to me possible. I've never understood it. The idea of a life free from suffering and pain. As a matter of fact, not only does it not seem possible, it never seems promised. It never seems laid on the table as something for us to have. I, I, it was not lost to me as I was an adult reading the Gospels for the first time. Then in Matthew, in chapter 7, when he starts to talk about where you should build your house, and he says, build it on a place where you have good foundations, because when the rain falls and the rivers rose and the winds blow, you're going to want your house built on a firm foundation. And they said, for those who built their house on sand in 7, 24 through 27, he talks about all this. He says, and then the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house and it collapsed and it collapsed with a great crash. You know what I took from that when I read that the first time? That the rain was coming. The rivers were going to rise. The wind was promised to blow and my house was going to be pounded by the elements. So I better build on good foundations. I better put a firm foundation in the ground because I am promised adversity that it's coming my way. But if I build this thing right, we'll survive the storm. Man, there is no getting out of this untouched. It's not even possible. My wife and I were walking recently and I was saying, look, this, this desire, this will to live a life untouched. What if I could do it, right? What if I could live the maximal length of life right now that's reasonable to understand in great health? 
and disaster never touched me personally. Would I have lived a life without pain and suffering? Absolutely not, because here's the reality. I'm 49 years old. It's not that weird anymore when people I know die. You know, when you're younger and somebody dies that's your age, it's tragic, it's horrible, it's awful. How could that have happened? And then you get to a little bit older and they die and you're like, ooh, they were so young. Ooh, they had that problem. Ooh, okay, what happened? We're still asking what happened because we're looking to figure out how did this happen so young? I'll tell you what, at 49, when I find out a friend of mine hasn't been taking care of themselves or somebody that I knew or somebody that was a part of my life, and they go, it's not that shocking. Not as it used to be. And I look at people a little older than me and they're seeing it more. And I watch some of the most people that I respect more than anybody else in this world. And I watch them and see that at the age they are right now, so many of the people that they've loved that were part of their lives all along the way are gone. See, if I live to be a hundred years old, perfectly healthy every day of my life until the moment that I check out in this world, I will still experience pain and loss and suffering. And it will only compound itself the longer that I live. The more I have this victory of long life, the more I will watch the people around me go away. It's interesting. I, I love a Christmas carol. Love it. I read it every year at Christmas. And you see two different characters dealing with loss in different ways in that book. You see Bob Cratchit in the vision of Christmas yet to come. And you see Ebenezer Scrooge in the vision of Christmas past. In Christmas past, you see Scrooge. Scrooge, as he's talking to Belle, who's breaking their engagement off. And she tells him, the fear of the world touching you, your fear of poverty, your fear of suffering again at loss and nothing. The fear of it has changed you. Everything that you once were that I was in love with is gone. And it has changed you into somebody that if you were honest with yourself would recognize you don't love me anymore either. This one all-consuming fear of being touched with loss and poverty has changed you into something that Belle says, I can't even love anymore. Although I wish you still loved me. I won't kid myself about that any longer. Now I say you have two characters. Now look at Cratchit. At the devastating loss of his son, Tiny Tim, as they sit down for Christmas dinner, he encourages his family as best he can in saying this is the first of many partings. See, the wisdom, going back to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he will not suffer death like those who have no hope. He is crushed under the pain of the loss of his child. And yet as the patriarch as a family on Christmas Day is telling them, so soon after that loss, there will be more. There will be more partings. And this is the first one. And although we profoundly feel it, that's a part of life. And we just have to be grateful for every moment that we got with him. They, they dealt with him entirely different ways. And that's important for us to see because I don't think it's possible to seek this life. Now, I'm just saying 
we shouldn't seek to minimize the impact in ways that are reasonable or rational, but we can't be afraid of loss. Because if we love others, and going back to the prevailing message of these podcasts is we're commanded to love them as ourselves. If we love others, no matter how healthy we are, we experience loss. No matter how healthy. And it's natural. In the book, Tuck Everlasting, there's a great moment where Tuck is talking to Winnie. And he's telling her as she's considering drinking from the fount that gave his humble, simple family eternal life. He tells her, the world is a wheel that keeps turning and changing all the time. And there is growth and there is transformation and there is death. And then there's us. We were removed from the wheel. And he tells her what I wouldn't give to be able to get back on it. It's just like being a rock. Untouched, unfazed, untransformed by the world around me. And I want to be a part of that change. Of that growth. Of that decay. Of that love and loss. Of what it means to be a human being. So not only is it isn't possible, but now we get to the point where we ask the question, would it even be desirable? I think about one of the things I was talking to my wife about recently, we talk a lot, is the idea of truly spoiled kids. You know, you think you see spoiled kids, but some people just are. Some people live a life where they are completely and totally spoiled. And what's interesting when I meet them is I don't, I don't envy them. I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for them because there's something missing from them. Some sense of their own brokenness. I don't know what it is. Some expectation that they have had humored in their life that's unhealthy. Psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. I don't know what it is, but they seem not fully to grasp the brokenness and fragility of it all. There's just an expectation that everything will always work out. Over a year ago, my son and I were discussing the future. And I remember telling him at the time, this world around you, this thing that you see that is our life, and not just, I mean, the life in our house or in our community, but this world, we live in a time of amazing stability, right? We live in a time where things are very protected and you live blessed privileged, all of those things. It's real. And that your life manifests itself with you having comfort that tomorrow will be the same as today. And the things that you hope to be able to do will materialize. But I did tell him at the same time, that's not the whole human experience. And I don't just mean here in the world today. I mean, throughout history, you live in an oddly protected time, but you also have to realize It could go at any moment. And you have to be the kind of person that can persevere no matter what happens tomorrow. That's important for us as you evaluate yourself. C.S. Lewis in my book, uh, in the book, my book, the book, God in the Docks, there's there's a chapter called Miserable Offenders. And in there he's talking about 
the people we know in our life as we evaluate them, as we grade them, and as some people we deeply dislike. And he says, and we see them, we see those spiritual failures that over and over again are seeking to overcome a particular problem. And over and over again, it traps them, stops them as a stumbling block for them. We pity them. We dismiss them. We dislike them. The miserable offenders. But then he says this, he's in and, and, and a help and in essence to try to help us to examine our own character. He says, God sees all those people that you see. And he sees one that you don't. He sees you. I remember the first time reading where C.S. Lewis introduced this idea to me where he said, think of the person that is most frustrating to you, most upsetting to you, drives you nuts. And then keep in mind that you're that for somebody else. Why do I bring that up? The miserable offenders, those people that struggle? Because C.S. Lewis's point of bringing up in that particular essay I'm talking about right now was to encourage you to examine yourself. And I can tell you that some of the places where I have hurt the most, struggled the most, felt the most pain, the most frustration in my lifetime have been the greatest spiritual lessons of my life. It's been, I I tell you, one of the people, not the single person, but one of the people most responsible for spiritual growth in me was a person that was every, he was designed by God to push my buttons. I genuinely believed when I knew him that he was supernaturally empowered to reach into my spirit and click some switch that could make me crazy furious at a moment's notice. It was bizarre. He could say anything to me and it just set me off. Good morning, Jay. What do you mean by that? It was nuts. And I, in turn, in response to feeling like he was always trying to frustrate me, was ungracious to him, shamefully and sinfully ungracious to him. And this is where I learned a lesson. I remember one day when he said, he did something and said something to me that was genuinely inexcusable and awful. And I lost it. And I was so ugly back to him. And I got in the car and was driving home and I felt conviction that I had to apologize. And I remember audibly telling God, I'm not saying I'm sorry to him. No, sir. That's not happening. Went to bed that night in my prayers, made sure God understood as I went to bed, not apologizing, not happening. Got up the morning is driving to work. I'm not apologizing to that guy. I'm not going to have any, there's to be no apology to him. I'm not sorry. He was out of line. He should not have said what he said. First thing I did when I saw him that morning was walk up to him and I told him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way I talked to you yesterday. I'm sorry for how I treated you. And he said, to his great credit, it was my fault. I started it. But I said, no, it wasn't your fault. And this is what C.S. Lewis, I think, is talking about in Miserable Offenders and examining my own sin. I said, it wasn't your fault because it doesn't matter what you said. There's no justification for the way I treated you. I'm not saying that what you said wasn't wrong. I do think it was wrong. But that doesn't justify my behavior towards you. And I'm sorry, and I hope you accept my apology. And he did. But that required me to adjust my own character, to see the lens of this suffering, this frustration, this pain that I was going through, 
of being required to deal with somebody that was making me insane is an opportunity for me to grow. That wasn't the last time I lost my temper with him or with other people. But every time I lost my temper with him after that, I immediately apologized. Told him I was sorry. There was no excuse for the way that I talked to him. I should never have ever taken that tone with another person. It was disrespectful and sinful. And what happened after I apologized enough? I stopped losing it because I stopped wanting to apologize. I didn't want to be somebody that couldn't control themselves and constantly had to readjust themselves through that seeking of forgiveness. And not just with him, within everybody. See, you know, C.S. Lewis says, it's not morbid to be concerned with my own character in the face of all of these things, especially my own sinful character, because the less I'm thinking about my own sin, the more I become consumed with the sin of others. I become fixated on what's wrong with everybody else and what they're doing wrong. And I should see these moments building on that idea as an opportunity to see what's wrong with me and to address those so that I can live a more fruitful and blessing-filled life, not by the things that he gives me, but because I will be behaving more in the character and person of Jesus Christ, hopefully, if I do this. And that kind of character building has always come in the face of trial. That doesn't mean that God can't do great blessing, can't do work through great blessing. He does. And here's how I know this. I was asked. I'll finish on this point. I was asked one time, would you want your kids to have to go through the same things that you went through in your life? And I remember thinking back to the painful events in my life, both those that were my fault. A lot of them were my fault and those that weren't. I remember thinking long and hard about that. And I said, I would never want any other human being to have to endure the truly awful things that I've had to endure. I would never wish that on somebody else. But, but I also love God and I have as near as I can tell, a great relationship with God. I love Jesus. And I am happy with the life that he'd given me. I remember one day mowing my lawn back. This was back, I think, when I worked in the warehouse and I had, I mean, nothing that anybody else would ever look to or want. Or maybe I was a CSR or even when I was a salesman later. And I was not, not rich not famous, not powerful, nothing that anybody else would look at in my modest, simple house that I get to live in that I love. And I was in the back mowing my lawn, watching my dog play, watching my wife sit on my deck. I think at the time she was holding one of our kids. And I thought, man, I couldn't build that. I'm so grateful to have that. So grateful to God that he delivered me to this cool place. Would I want my kids to have to endure what I've endured? Of course not, unless enduring what I endured would get them to the same relationship with God or better. And then the answer is as hard as it's going to be to watch them suffer, let them suffer if it leads them to him. If it paves a path to this place where they can look at their life and be overwhelmed with emotion and gratitude 
if they can look around at the things that they're doing and say, man, I didn't build that. See, that's why I say I don't even think it's, it's desirable. At least it couldn't have been for me in my life to experience a life without all the pain that I had to endure. Every bit of it led me to this moment. I am a man with no regrets, not because I don't wish I hadn't been better. I do. I hate the man that I was, but genuinely, when people say, what would you change about your life? My answer is always the same. Nothing, nothing. I would risk nothing. Not because I couldn't have been better. I would love to have been better, but it was the life that I led that got me here. And as messed up as I was, and as much as I messed it up for other people along the way, God has just delivered me to a great place. And whatever happens to me from this point on, he has used it all to make someone who grew up. And when I was 21 years old, I so despaired of life. I wanted to be dead, not suicidal, but dismissing all of this as something so meaningless, so small, so brief, so infinitesimal in the span of the universe. As to who cares whether you live 21, 22 years and 70 years, it's all the same in this indifferent, miserable universe. And then now, years later, I live a life that I'm so happy with that I fear the question of what would I change if I could because I had nothing to do with building this. And if I went back and started changing things to try to make this happen, all I could do is mess it up. And that includes every bit of the pain that helped me to mature during the course of my life. Going back to children with Down syndrome, people justify aborting children before they're born because they say that there's just going to be too much challenge in their lives with them as a part of it. But then you ask parents of children with Down syndrome if they're proud of their kids and they tell you by I think 95, 96% of them say, yes, I am. You get the same percentage of siblings that are saying they are thrilled and happy to have had a sibling with Down syndrome, that it made them on both the parents and the children reporting, it made me a better person. And like 90, 99% of people living with Down syndrome saying that they're happy with their lives, grateful the lives they've been allowed to live. This doesn't sound like a bunch of people, no matter what the challenges of those lives held, the despair of the choices that they made to face those challenges. It's not avoiding pain that's important, and that's the end of this. It's developing a strategy to deal with pain and loss in a way that doesn't make us like those who have no hope. It's recognizing that he never promised us a life without pain. As a matter of fact, most of his scripture, when you look at it, shows you that trials and suffering are coming and he wanted you to build a life that was prepared for those so that it wouldn't turn you into some selfish mess or some fearful thing that lost all the things that were most important about yourself as you strive to avoid it. But that you could be like the wise Bob Cratchit who endured the worst of pain by encouraging his family. And that we could have these moments as terrible as they are and reflect back like the miserable offenders in C.S. Lewis, God in the Docks, and look at ourselves and say, God sees every frustrating person in my life, but he sees the one person 
that I have the hardest time seeing as well, and that's me. So let me evaluate myself in the middle of this pain, in the middle of this trial, and see if there's something about me that we can refine at this time. And to recognize that those refining moments may lead us to a place that we could never have even believed existed before we went through them. This has been Jay Watts. Thank you for turning in to another Human Things podcast. Remember, as I say all the time, remember Olaf, during this time, try to be a source for all good things, all good things, all good things. <laughs>